Hey, you're listening to Rock and or Roll. I'm BJ, and for today's episode, I am joined by Ian Kimmett, who is the singer, songwriter, and second guitar player from a hard rock, glam rock band active in the early 70s in the UK called Juke. And Juke was made up of Ian, guitar player Trevor White, bassist Ian Hampton, and drummer Chris Townsend. And they were managed by John Hewlett, who at the time was managing Sparks. And John Hewlett had been a member of John's Children. Drummer Chris Townsend was also a member of that band. And another former member of John's Children active in the glam rock scene at the time was Mark Bolan, of course. So Juke released five singles between 72 and 74 while they were an active band all with RCA and only released in the UK. And then after the band split up, there was another four-song EP that was released by Chiswick Records in the UK, and that came out in the US, released by Bomp Records. Also, in 2005, a 22-song CD called Different Class was released by RPM Records, which was distributed by Cherry Red. Records, and that's a great compilation that includes pretty much everything, probably everything that Juke ever recorded. And you also get the two songs from Trevor White's Trevor White, the guitar player, put out a single after Juke split up. You get those songs, and you get a couple of demos from Ian Kimmett. So, Different Class is a very comprehensive compilation CD of Juke material. Of course, it was released in 2005, and I'm pretty sure it's out of print. I'm not sure how difficult it is to get your hands on, but it's a great CD. This was a great band, and this should be a fun episode. So, let's get to it. This is the conversation I had about the history of the band Juke with the band's frontman and main songwriter, Ian Kimmett. Gallagher and Lyle, and uh, he was using my office. They allowed him to come in, and he shared my office, and we just bonded. And we were talking about how boring the whole music scene has become, you know. So I, uh, I got together with Trevor, and we started playing, and we decided, hey, you know, we need some really fresh working-class rock and roll. And so I left my job. He left his. We moved to Scotland to. So, farmhouse. Uh, I did. I was in the farmhouse. He was in a house in a 
town of Jedburgh, and we put the band together. But the point, the whole point of it was, was we were really bored, you know, and uh, with uh, the music scene. And as soon as we got rolling and rocking and rolling, the whole glam thing took off, you know. And unfortunately, it was uh, Mark Bowen had been in a band with John Hewlett, the manager, and Trevor played occasionally, and uh, John's children. And suddenly, the whole glam thing set off, you know, and uh, all these people on TV painted up and, you know, uh, androgynous people. And it, it was really weird because we were just a rock and roll band. So they, they decided we had to be part of the glam scene, you know, and um, RCA kept pushing us for a single, you know, like we were putting out all those records and uh, they said, well, just give us something we can get on top of the pops, you know, and that's what we need. And so I sat down and uh, composed this bash boss, you know, which was basically a Tim Chapman kind of uh, strategy. And uh, they loved it, of course. Yeah, yeah, this is what we needed, you know. And so then they had us audition for Mam, the big agent at the time. We were putting on a sweet tour and uh, we passed it. And they said, yeah, yeah, you're going to support sweet on a national tour. And uh, Bish Bash Boss will work that and will probably get you on top of the pops. And I'm, we were like, okay, the band were unhappy, you know. Trevor and everybody were like, oh, God, you know, Bish Bash Boss. It was a real commercial attempt, you know. Guys, join us because we're going to let the guitar player and the bass player go. And 
so they called me and they said, what do you think? We, we should take the job. And I said, do it, just do it. You know, so they joined Sparks and that was the end of the band. You know, um, Chris went back to playing, uh, the drummer went back to playing in blues bands and I got a job. And that was in 1974, the year you were born. <laughs> right. We had one last gig in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, we got a call from Max Morton, a promoter of a three-day heavy metal event in uh, the Webster in Hartford, Connecticut. And he said that there was a lot of Duke fans in Hartford. They'd love to see the band play. And we were, so I, called, I asked the guys, and they said, let's do it. You know, so it was a 40-year reunion, you know. So they came over. I went over there, and then they came over here, and then we did the gig. And my son uh, filmed the whole thing, and he's just put it out as a little documentary, Jukes on You, and uh, it won first place in the California Video uh, Awards, uh, so uh, as um, best live performance. So it's out now, you know, and uh, so I should bring your attention to that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see that. So I guess you answered some of my biggest questions. I was wondering where you fit into the glam scene and you know, if that was the kind of band you intended to be and or if you were writing those songs, you know, to fit. Well, we, were, we were really uh, a little rock and roll band, you know. Um, we happened to dress like the Bay City Rollers, you know, at the time. We got our hair all, you know, uh, spiked up and trimmed up. And, uh, and we just happened to choose the clothes that the Bay City Rollers uh, adopted. You know, they came to our gigs. They were Scottish, too. And uh, Tam Payton, their manager, we'd known from Edinburgh. And the next thing we knew, we were actually in Cornwall, I think, doing a gig, and we were sitting around watching the TV before the gig, watching Top of the Pops. And there we were, on Top of the Pops, you know. <laughs> Shit, we are on Top of the Pops, and it was the Bay City Rollers, you know. And uh, they, had a little tart, they had a little tartan additives to the clothes, you know. So then we were like, whoa. So we changed our whole image to rugby shirts and boxing boots and everything else and re realigned ourselves, you know. But yeah, they lifted the whole image. So, and it was just natural for us, but they, they adopted it. So, yeah, and that was part of the glam thing. They were all glam bands, you know. And we, we were not trying to be a glam band, you know, but everybody, because it was at the same time, and we were, you know, we were a good looking young band and we got on the front of all the girl magazines, you know, in, in uh, in the UK, you know, they, they did photo sessions and got got into these magazines with all the glam people, well, like Mark Bowen, and, uh, you know. So we were just lumped in with glam, you know, that was it. Well, you had started out in producing in the early 70s, didn't you? Yeah, uh, working for Feldman's uh, Publishing, I was, on the, I was on the lookout for bands and things, you know, for them, for publishing. I'd go to all the clubs, First people I brought into the office was Linda Thompson. She was in a duo called Paul and Linda. I saw her in a club, and we had the Bob Dylan basement tapes. And Albert had been over. Albert Grossman had been over and said, "Can we get some covers on these? You think? What do you think?" You know, we were like, "Sure." So I brought them in. I took them up to Ian Ralphini at MGM Records up the road in Dean Street uh, in Soho, and uh, the uh, auditioned for him and he signed them for two singles and uh, so that was Linda Thompson's first outing you know Richard and Linda Thompson so then I there were other bands that I got involved with and uh, Nick Simper left Deep Purple he made a few demos and I said 
leave them with me and I'll take them up to Mike Everett, who signed Duke to RCA later. But I took them up to Mike Everett, who was at Phillips at the time for Vertical, a Vertical label. And he says, yeah, I love it. You know, and so he signed, he signed Warhorse, which was Nick Simper's new band. So I produced, kind of co-produced both of those albums for, for Mike Everett. And so it went. It, it was. It went on and on from there. Little, little bits and pieces. Mud, you know. Mud were uh, managed by Ronnie Beck, and then Mickey Bush stormed in the office one day and said, "I want this band. We've got to work this out." You know, he was very aggressive. And and the band all had a meeting, you know, with Ronnie. And then we all worked around the pub, and the band said to me, "What do you think?" And I, you know, they were just, you know, we'd made. I produced one single with them. Uh, Shangri-La on Phillips, and uh, I said, listen, guys, you know, it's Mickey Most, and, you know, you, you'll be on top of the pops in a few weeks, you know, and they were like, yeah, and they were very loyal to Ronnie, you know, but we all were, but um, they, they said to Ronnie, we're going to do this, Ronnie, and Ronnie said, okay, so they signed with Mickey Most, and uh, Tim Chapman, of course, you know, uh, that was it, I mean, it, that was it. So that was another thing I did uh, at film. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so Mud were another band who started out as one kind of thing, but ended up pivoting into the glam rock thing later. Yeah, they were kind of a, they were you know they were a capable bands you know harmony wise and music wise they were capable, but they were they were not going to go anywhere you know. Uh, Mickey Most uh, had seen them uh, at a club in London. It took I think he and uh, Mike Chapman, Mike Chapman and Mickey Moore saw them in a club, and Mike Chapman said, "Let's get them," you know. And that was, they, and so they turned, they, they dressed them up, you know. Uh, they joined the, the glam set, I guess you'd say, but it was more like a an Elvis Presley takeoff from for Les Gray, you know. Uh, they were all very good anyway, and and with with uh, Mike Chapman's songs behind them in production, it was off and running, you know. Yeah, I guess a lot, a lot of the time to be successful in the glam thing, you had to. It had to be kind of teeny bopper, right? And that's oh, yeah. that's the thing. Juke never was. I guess bish no. bash bosh that was kind of an attempt, but just the sound of your records and and the look of the band, you never right. were teeny bopper at all. You were a rock no. band, like you said. So, right, and we rocked out on stage, extended solos, and. I used to dive around on my knees and everything. You know, we played with Wizard and people like that, and they, they liked us. They were like, you're a good little band. And they're like, yeah, yeah. We were just rocking and rolling, you know. Uh, when I wrote this past boss, as I said, you know, I took it to the rehearsals, and I, I said, let's try this, because, you know, it's a matter of survival, guys, lads, you know. And so we worked it up, and I could tell they were unhappy, you know. Trevor was like, oh, man, you know, and I said, well, you know, we've got to try something. So we went in to the studio um, and recorded it, you know, and uh, they loved it. They were like, yeah, you know, this is what's happening. So that's the road we started on. If we had gotten the tour and uh, we'd gotten on top of the pops and, you know, things started happening, it would, been a, it would have been a question of churning out you know, Tim Chapman's songs at that point. Yeah. So so the band starts with just you and Trevor, Trevor White, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So how, how did you and Trevor White meet? When did you first meet Trevor? Oh, uh, he was, uh, he was uh, 
another musician known to John Hewlett. He'd been he'd just subbed in, in John's children a few times, as as had uh, well the drummer Chris Townsend was in John's children with John Hewlett. You know they were all connected, and uh, John introduced me to Trevor. He said, "I got a friend that's a really good guitar player. He's great with you know he's a Beach Boys fan. He's very." He's very good with all of that and harmonies and guitar playing. And he was on a band with his brother, the AJs. And I said, oh, well, that's me. You know, so we, we, we started meeting in a pub, you know, and Trevor's uh, lunch breaks. It was a ticket office, some kind of you know, theater ticket office. And I was in Felbins, you know. So we just decided to do it. And, you know, I went home one day and I said, Helen, I'm leaving Felbins. I'm going to start a band, my wife, you know. And she looked at me and she said, it was like, what? And I said, yeah, you know, it's going to get paid for. You know, John Hill is going to get the money. So I'm having a break, you know, because my, my boss, Ben Nisbet at Feldman's, was leaving the company to start his own company, uh, a record company, Big Ben Music, you know. And I've had enough of all of it at that point, you know. I'd met Albert Grossman at that point, though, which was good, you know. So after Duke folded, I looked him up again when he came to London, and we never parted after that. He, he, we bonded properly, and... Uh, we had bonded before, you know, at Feldman's. I was on loan to him when he came over to go shopping with him, you know, antiques and all that kind of stuff. So he asked me to work for him then. I said, no, I'm going to start a band. I got a recording deal. And I left Feldman's. And then when that all folded, I met Albert again. And he, he said, work for me. And I said, okay. So that was that, you know. Um, that brought me here. You know, uh, yeah, so Feldman's, uh, 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 Trevor went on to do the island thing. Chris remained in blues bands. Chris was a great direct graphic artist, too. He did, um, you know, he did uh, greetings cards and things and humorous things. He was really good. So he had that going for himself and playing in blues bands. And Ian Hampton did a lot of sessions. He was, uh, you know, he was in, in demand a little bit for sessions, you know, and then... He got a job as some computer tech, you know, eventually, and uh, settled in that. And uh, But he made enough money to um, invest with with his lady, Jan, and they bought a, they bought a little hotel in uh, Brecon, Wales. And uh, so he became a hotelier and, uh, for years. And then he met people, Alvin Stardust, people like that came through the it's a very it's a tourist town and so and then he got very friendly with Joe Elliott he's a big buddy of Joe Elliott and uh, who narrates the Duke documentary actually and um, so uh, after that he sold the hotel and retired so that was that and then Chris died you know the drummer died I was here they were there and uh, so that was the passing of Chris so when we did the um, reunion we had Simon Stewart on drums, and Simon was a 20-year-old, fantastic young drummer who, had, who was doing sessions in London, and the guys had met him, and they said, can we bring Simon Stewart on drums? I said, sure, let's do it, and it, was, it worked out beautifully, you know, but that was that. So going back to, to Feldman's, when you, you say you were working in publishing, right, so does that mean that you were looking for songwriters? Yeah. Yeah. And you want yeah. to and to sign them to to publishing deals, correct? That's so right. so yeah. it's different from being an A and R. You're not trying to get them, or are you also trying to get them a record deal? 
Yeah, yeah. I, 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 when I, you know, like with uh, Nick Simper's band Warhorse, I got them the record deal at uh, Vertigo Phillips uh, with Mike Everett and produced the record. Mud asked me to work with them on their single. They were they'd gotten a single deal with Phillips, I believe it was Phillips, and they said, you know, would you? In fact, everybody said, do it with Mud. Help Mud, and I said, okay. So we we recorded. Uh, Johnny Arkey was the arranger in Philip's studio, actually. And uh, so I was present. I was really the producer in, in name. I mean, I, you know, I was I was at the control desk and they were recording and I was, I was adding my tuppence, you know. We had worked, we had worked the song up together. So that's how the mud thing happened, you know. So you, you wanted to be in a band yourself. Was working at Feldman's just your way? to be a part of the industry and to try to, to to find your way into the music business yourself? or Yeah, I left Edinburgh. Um, uh, I was a draft, trainee draftsman in Edinburgh, and uh, I met a friend who had been at school with me. He was living in London, in an apartment in London. He said, come down if you want to see what you can do down there. And uh, my wife, Helen, had met a Liverpool musician. Her father has hotel, a hotel hotels but a hotel at that point in Jedburgh and they had a band stay with them in fact Mud used to stay with them afterwards uh, before they were famous they, they always checked in at Jedburgh and Helen's dad's hotel and did a gig there and we were all very close but anyway um, this Liverpool musician was staying there and uh, Helen talked to him about me you know I was in bands in Edinburgh you know and so he said tell him to come down and check us out so and then I met Brian in the street in Edinburgh, and he was going back to his apartment in London. He said, come down. So I, I, I said to my mum and dad, you know, I'm, I'm going to go down to London and check it all out. And they were like, what? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I went down there and decided that it was for me. And uh, and I got a I got a job. One, one of the big stores in London is Selfridges in Oxford Street. And... Uh, I got a temp job there over Christmas to get get settled, and I was allowed to stay at the apartment, Brian's apartment, and uh, I wrote letters. I got a job in the music department, which was really good for me, and there was an old lady there who was running the, the music department. She was really great, and she had contacts in the music business, so she told me what to do, you know. She said, well, you want to write letters and give a little bit of your history, and you know, see if they've got any jobs for you. And uh, so I did. And uh, it landed on Ben Nisbet's desk at Feldman's. Called me in. And I went in to see him. It's funny because I had an old tweed suit that, you know, I'd taken down there. It was falling apart. So the night before the interview, I ironed uh, plastic tape on the inside of the pants because they were ripping. You know, it was a suit, but it was falling apart. Uh I went in there very uncomfortable and I sat with Ben Nisbet who was the managing director and he said to me so your, your list is interesting so tell me about yourself and I said yeah and he said what kind of music do you like young man and I said well everything from I looked around the room in the office and I said everything from Bob Dylan to Beethoven I guess and he looked at me and he said does somebody tell you to say that and I said Say that? I said, no, 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 that's off the top of my head, you know. He said, well, that's interesting because we published Bob Dylan and we have Bright Cough and Hartle in the business, which is the Beethoven publisher. And I said, wow, that's, and he said, you're sure nobody, I said, absolutely not. I'm telling you the truth. I just 
so that I am, you know, too. So he offered me the job of starting in the trade department, which I did with any new person for three months uh, for less money than I was making at Selfridges. I was starving at Selfridges. And so I worked my way up from the trade department and uh, the professional department. And the main job was plugging, going around the the radio stations and getting airplay for records, you know. Okay. And so that's my main job. My other job was scouting for, uh, you know, bands and writers. And so I was there for until I left for Duke, you know. Right. And so when John Hewlett introduces you to Trevor, he's hoping you guys are going to start a band that he can work yeah, with? Yeah, yeah, that was his intention. Yeah. Like, I put these two together, they're both of the same mind, you know, they can start a band, and we did. And you were the main, you were the songwriter in Juke, right? It seems like you wrote all or most of the songs. Yeah, I did, I did. Trevor came up with two or three great songs, but he was not prolific, and, uh, and, we never had writing sessions, you know. I was in the north of London. They, the other guys were in the. Well, Trevor was in the south of London, so he'd come up every day to rehearse. We met in a rugby club, Barnet. But it, there was never, interestingly enough, never an intent to get together to write. And uh, so I ended up, you know, going back from rehearsals with riffs in my mind and progressions and. I sat till the early hours of the morning most days and um, walked out some songs, you know, and uh, that was it. And I took them to the rehearsals and we worked them out. And the other guys, Ian and uh, Chris, didn't have any writing aspirations, chops or anything. But Trevor, Trevor came up with, you know, over the two years, he came up with like three really good songs. It's just, I've written one kind of thing. And we were like, okay, uh, and they were good, yeah. So when you started the band, when you first started, had the glam thing really taken off yet, or was it? Did it kind of coincide um, with when you start the band? All of a sudden, glam just takes over. Right. Well, we were signed to RCA by Mike Everett, and uh, he had just signed Bowie, and Bowie was starting to roll. So by the time we started recording, coming back from Scotland to London, and forming the band proper and, and recording, Bowie was rolling. You know, he'd got he'd gotten a few records away, Gene Sheeney, things like that. And uh, so the whole glam thing kicked in just as we got the band rolling, really. That's what happened. And uh, it was a glam world at that point. Everything yeah. had to be glam, you know. And yeah. we, were, we were not, we were really not interested, but that's what happened, you know. And... We got lumped in to the, the glam thing because of the way we looked and um, and the girly magazines and all that kind of thing. You know, we just became part of that scene. You know, but we we would never we never joined the, the glam scene. You know, we we just kept doing what we were doing. You know. Well, the songs that you were writing, like King Cap and Ooh Ooh Rudy, they really they do fit with glam, but they are different because they're they're more riffy and they're just heavier and just cooler rock songs and right. and not at all teeny bopper. They don't sound like a Chin and Chapman song at all. They do seem like they also would have worked before or after glam, but they also do fit like it also does work within the glam 
scene as well. So that's that's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you weren't writing those songs like King Cap and Ooh Ooh Rudy. Were those just naturally the songs you wrote, or were you thinking about trying to have a hit? Well, Rudy was a play on the Jamaican Rudy thing. Um, that just came into my mind, and uh, you know, the harder they come was out at that time and everything. We were enamored of the movie and Rudy. I love the Rudy thing, you know. So I wrote that for that, really. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Cat was, uh, you know, I'd always been an Andy Cap fan, you know, had the uh, cartoons, and he was a he was a household cartoon in the UK, you know. And I was sitting fiddling one night, and um, you know, King Cap, uh, it just, I thought that's kind of cool, you know. So uh, I incorporated uh, some of the band members into the, uh, you know, uh, into the song, you know, uh, at the bar with chalky white. Uh, which was, I think, made, worked with Trevor, Trevor White, and 
when I was in a band in Edinburgh, uh, there was two singers in one band I was in, and uh, me being one of them. And uh, and and uh, the guy was much older than us. We were all teens. He was the older guy uh, known in Edinburgh, you know. And he used to go down to the the dole office, you know, the unemployment office. And he was making plenty of money singing and working. And uh, he always had this joke that he signed his, his weekly unemployment check with a gold rolled pencil, you know, which always tickled me, you know. And he, he, he said he was a, you know, he was a character. Mm-hmm. And so I got that in the song too, you know, it's gold rolled pencil, something like that. And, uh, and Trevor White said, Chalky White. And uh, anyway, that was it. I just sat around in the, my home and conjured up King Cap, you know, for Andy Cap. Yeah, King Cap is a great record. I love, I love the sound. The, yeah, the production is great, and the riffs. It's a pretty yeah. heavy. It's a heavy rock song, and uh, but it's also fun and catchy. So the songs that ended up being released after the band broke up, La La Girl and Aggravation Place, were you, were those? So how close were you to actually recording a full length album for Juke? Well, that was that was the idea, you know. We were working towards that, um, and all those um, oh, those tracks, you know, the the non-release tracks were all recorded at R. G. Jones Studio in Wimbledon, right next door to the Wimbledon Tennis Stadium, and uh, so they were all we 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 produced ourselves on a lot of those tracks, you know. So um, yeah, they were all headed for when we got the go ahead to make an album, which would have happened, I think, after Bispash Boss. Um, those were intended for that, but but you know, as I said, you know, with the advent of Bispash Boss, we were really 
you know, had it happened, we were committing to joining the fray. You know? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if the A&R people, RCA, they just wanted a, you know, a bunch of bish-bash bosses, I think, you know. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. In that time period, it's weird how how short something like the glam thing actually is if you look back on it that it really only lasted a few years but at the time it probably seemed like well this is how it's going to be now <laughs> you know but of course yeah. everything changes yeah. pretty quick you know punk happens in 76 77 and then there's then nobody cares about glam anymore right it was never my favorite you know thing anyway i mean i I'm sure there's a few that I really like, but, uh, um, you know, I, we didn't, I didn't like most of what was happening. You know, you'd turn on top of the pops, it was half an hour of silly bands, you know, really, um, uh, all, all, you know, parading themselves and, and, uh, makeup and sparkly clothes and, High heel boots and uh, silly songs. You know, it was never really. Uh, I never really, uh, never really got close to that. You know, uh, I don't know. You know, I was still going for Robert Palmer and people like that at that point. You know, like people like people like Jug. You know. Yeah, well, if you look at pictures of Juke, you look more like a punk band or a mod band. If you want to go back to, to the earlier. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it was that. People also called us a skinhead band. We were never a skinhead band, you know, but they were duped the skinhead band. We were like, what? Well, I guess if you were a glam band that had short hair, that's just what, if you didn't have longer hair. Because Slade, when Slade Slade cut their hair early on and they had the same issue where they were supposedly a skin. The thing I remember about Slade that always amused me, uh, we found, I, mean, I think we just found them amusing, you know. Um, but they used to uh, they used to add their stomping boots to the records, you know, in the hallway <laughs> of the studios. You know, the the last thing they'd put on would be the doop 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 doop, and it was all very, uh, you know, it was it was a formula, you know. Um, but he just uh, Noddy just kept cranking out those uh, choruses, you know, and that was it, you know. I guess. Basically, your entire Juke's entire career, uh, you rolled the dice on Bish Bash Bosh, and if that had been a hit, then you would have had a record. But since it wasn't a hit, and since the Sweet Tour didn't happen, the band just split up, basically. Yeah, yeah, it broke up. I, well, I got a job, and and then the guys were offered the Sparks gig, and. Uh, they called me and said, you know, what do you think? Should we do this? You know, we think we should do it. Do you think? I said, just go for it. Go for it, man. You need to work. You know, you need. And they had, they had a couple of years of touring the world, you know, with Sparks. You know, Sparks were huge in Europe as well as Britain. Um, they had like top 10, 10, top 10 singles in Britain, I think. In the yeah. UK. And they were big in Sweden and Germany and, uh, and then they tried to break in the U.S., so they spent a lot of time over here, you know, gigging, and but it didn't happen. But, uh, but you know, yeah, so Trevor and you had a, a, a whale of a time for a couple of years, you know, touring the world, you know. 
So the band really only existed for about three years. Yeah. Did you play a lot of shows? Like what what were yeah. the what were the places where you would play and, and what kind of bands would you share the bill with? Oh, we played all over the place. Um we played with Brinsley Schwartz, Wizard, um Ian and the Zodiacs, I think it was one of those. Brinsley Schwartz, that's interesting. So yeah. So the pub rock, there was the whole pub rock thing happening at the same time. Right, right, exactly, exactly. We we fell between we fell between the cracks there because there was a raw pub rock thing happening, and we were not part of that either. You know, we could we should have been. We were on the fringes of it, but we we never became a pub rock band. You know, we played clubs and universities, and uh, oh, we played with we played with um uh, Peter Gabriel, we played with Genesis. Um, it was a funny one. Uh, it was in a university in the Midlands somewhere, and when we got together for the reunion, the guys were chatting away about you know the old days, and they said, "Remember that gig we did with Genesis?" And I, I, I had not remembered. I was like, I was like, no, I don't remember that. And they went, "Oh, come on, you must." And I said, "I don't." And they said, "Well, Trevor was very, always very amusing, very funny. He's a, he's a very funny lad." He's got you know, he kept us all laughing. He said, oh, yeah, we were in tears at that gig watching them performing. And I said, we were. And he said, yeah, they, they came out dressed as trees, you know, <laughs> with uh, costumes with, you know, they were trees, you know. And I was like, oh, I do have a vague recollection of that, you know. And we were all laughing. And later on, I checked it out. I saw a photograph of Gabriel doing it. And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, I remember now. But, I mean, it was so you know, we got out and rocked and rolled at the university, and they came on, and they were all dressed as trees. You know, it was just—it was just a bizarre time. You know, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't ever thought of that before, but you really were Juke. Really were kind of in between pub rock and glam rock, and uh, must have been weird. Right. Yeah, it must have been a strange yeah. time when both of those things were. We're happening right. at the same time, and yeah, here yeah. you were. I think the pub rock thing was only getting rolling too, and right. the punk and pub rock thing got rolling slightly after us. You know, um, Doctor Feelgood, one of my favorite bands. They were not really happening when we were. It was slightly after, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, our music uh, preceded some of that, some of the main thrust of those things. You know. Um, that was it. Um, we did a gig with Jack Bruce at a university, and um, we, uh, our host, uh, student body, you know, took us, he come with me, and he took us down a corridor to, this will be your dressing room, you know. And so he knocked on the door. We were all standing there with our stage clothes over our shoulders and everything, you know, and he, he knocked on the door, and the door opened. It was Jack Bruce, who was Scottish, you know, too, you know. I mean, there's two Englishmen in our band and two Scotsmen, he and me. And anyway, the door opened and Jack Bruce looked out and he went, yeah. And the guy said, this is your support band, so I have to get them in so they can get changed. He said, <laughs> he looked at us and he said, I don't give an F who they are. And he used the word, I don't give an F who they are. They're not effing coming in here. <laughs> and we were like, oh, okay. And he just closed the door. <laughs> so he said, oh, I'm sorry about this. And we were like, whatever. I guess he wants his privacy. And he went, yeah, yeah, well, come with me. We'll find you somewhere. So he put us in, uh, put us in the biology lab. So would this be okay? This bench is here and you can... And we said, sure, sure, it's okay. 
and there was a python, a baby python in a glass cage. And I said, oh, he's beautiful. And he said to me, you want to you hold him? And I said, yeah. Really? I said, sure. So he brought him out, and I had him had him around me and holding him. You know, it was, it was great. You know, it was the first time I'd held a snake, and it was just leathery. You know, just leathery. And uh, anyway, I, I mentioned that because it's, it stays with me. It was a lovely moment, you know, back. And uh, anyway, Jack Bruce told us to piss off, basically, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I never I, forgot that either. I was, uh, you know, you know, jerk. You know, he wasn't pleasant. You know, he couldn't have said, "Listen, guys, I really want my privacy" or something. He just said, "You know, he was swearing." You know, that's funny because <clears throat> isn't Ginger Baker the one from that band that's more famous for being an asshole? But it sounds like I think, they were, I think both of them were. Yeah, I think they both, <laughs> you know. yeah. I think Clap had enough. <laughs> <laughs> After he left Cream, he said, I'll never record aggressive music again. That was his, that's what he said to some meeting. I think it was just a reflection of what the band was like, you know, the two guys in the band. So did you play, yeah. did you play many shows with other glam bands or? No, we, we weren't in that circuit at all. No, we never, I don't ever remember, except for Wizard. We did a gig with Wizard somewhere in Birmingham or somewhere and uh, they were all, decked out, you know, Roy Wood. And, uh, but they were good. They were a rocking band. They were all decked out glam, but they, they were, it was, Roy Wood was just something else. You know, he was glam, but he wasn't, you know. Yeah. You know. And he had had a, a, he had been in a big band before and he had already racked up a bunch of hits. So. Right. Yeah, but it's yeah. interesting that he went, he went with it. Like, I guess, you know, at that in that era, you had to make a choice. Are you going to yeah. throw in with glam or not, right? Right. Well, he was, I think Roy Wood was, he made, he made, he made good records, and, you know, he had that Phil Spector sound, but it was slightly embarrassing. He was an older guy, and he, he had stars all over his face, you know, and makeup on his eyes and his hair, and it was like, oh, dear God, you know. But anyway, I mean, having known who he was before, he keep jumped right in the glam thing you know it's funny to hear you talk like that because you know in america we had the same thing in the 80s with the what they call hair metal and there were certain bands that were right. they sounded pretty close to the same but well if you have a band like guns and roses so they're never gonna look like poison but right. but right. they're at the same time and they're all kind of getting lumped together and uh right. yeah it's interesting I never really thought about that, but so were there quite a few bands at the time that were resistant to the glam thing? Was there that kind of? No, 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 no. no. If only, only we 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 broached uh, the subject of pub rock, and I think there was a there was that element happening there. You know, Hill Pie Island and the pubs around London, and uh, we we were too busy doing what we were doing to even take notice of that. But it was it was pot boiling at that point. You know, that was the that, and they're slightly older musicians too, you know. But that was what was that was what was happening away from uh, glam, you know. What would it have taken for Bish Bash Bash to to get you guys on top of the pops? Did you have to? Did it already have to at least be a minor hit, or did yeah. Top of the Pops no. turn things into hits, or did you already have yeah. to? Yeah, they, right, you would have had you would have had the RCA promotion guys. Um, 
we were on tour. We, we would have been on tour with Sweet, and we'd been doing the rounds, and we were really good live. So we'd probably, you know, been helping ourselves there as as the Sweet Support Act. And um, the RCA promotion people would have been pounding top of the pops, you know, um, with Bish Bash Bosch. And that's what happened. That's how you got on, you know. And um, we're very hopeful that they would score, you know. So we would have probably ended up doing a spot on top of the pops. And uh, that's all you really needed, you know. It was reaching millions of people around the country, you know. So, so you think... Basically, if the sweet tour had happened, you right. probably would have been on top of the pops. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think we all agree that would have happened. You know? And yeah. yeah, well, that yeah, that song would have fit perfectly <laughs> at the time on top of the pops. It right. almost seemed like it was a Chin and Chapman song or or whatever, even though you wrote it. The guys, I don't think the guys ever looked at it as a Chin Chapman song, but I certainly modeled it on uh, on what they were doing. You know, I I, I, I did. You know, I, I sat and thought, well, you know, this is how they you know, act into the hooks and the you know, and also the you know the spoken thing. You know, where it says uh, my my my. You right. know, and that was all taken from from that. You know, so it was a it was a a deliberate effort to write a pop song for survival with RCA, you know, and that's what I did. Yeah, I was going to ask, so when you're writing Bish Bash Bash, you're like, either I'm going to have to go get a job or, or I'm going to write this song. Was that kind of... Right. Yeah, exactly. We were running out of time with our recording contract and... Uh, with their patience, you know, they were like, "Yeah, yeah, well, you're a good little band, but there's not much. We're not, we're not be able to take this anywhere." Yeah, it was, it was reaching that point, and uh, I said to the guys when, uh, you know, I auditioned the song, I said to them, "You know, this is about survival, guys. We gotta, we gotta, you know, appease the A and R people. We gotta try to let's just do this and see what they think, you know." And they were like, "Okay, you know." <laughs> So you said Brian Connolly got the crap beaten out of him in a pub. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically, do you do you know do you know what happened? Why? How the fight started? Playing, I, I heard he was playing pool or something, and it was the it was the same old thing, you know, the dyed blonde hair and the, and the clothing and everything else, and a bunch of a bunch of you know torags, a bunch a bunch of uh, you know. Good boys just took it out on him, you know, like, you know, you're a fucking poofter or whatever, excuse me, but something like that, you know, and uh, he got beaten up, you know. I mean, he, he was, uh, he's probably capable of looking after himself, but uh, they beat him up, you know, and uh, it was, we got the call, you know, Brian's in hospital, we were like, what? You know, and uh, yeah, it was awful, just awful, you know, but I mean, that was the backlash too about, you know, glam, you know, yeah. I mean, Working guys, you know, drinking their beer and seeing a guy like him playing pool and all his finery and his his blonde dyed hair and everything. They were, you know, they just decided to take it out on him. I guess horrible, but that's how it went. It happened to Forkat here in America, um, who I worked with on Bear, at Bearsville Records, you know, and uh, you 
you know, they were touring in the south and they were doing as much the same thing. They were in a bar, I think, playing pool again or something like that. And the local guys and the local town guys, you know, started deriding them and calling them fairies and all, whatever they were calling them. And uh, they got into a punch-up, you know, and uh, the bass player at the time had all his teeth smashed and everything to cancel gigs and their replacement base. He was beat, he was beaten up badly, and that happened to them. You know, it was just it was the long hair and the clothing, and uh, you know, it was a bad moment for Foghat, but they survived it. You know? Wow, yeah. So I'm just thinking, if if only Brian Connolly hadn't gotten beaten up, we might have a ju- we would probably have a juke record, <laughs> right? A full length album, right? Right. Well, Joe Elliott talks on the Duke documentary. He talks about us and, and the times and glam and sparks and everything else. And uh, he calls this bass boss. He says a classic. You know, he said <laughs> he said it's uh, one like one that got away. You know, unheralded or something like that. Classic. You know, so he was way into. He was a kid at the time. You know, yeah. he was a spark. But saying this town ain't big enough for the both of us and. He loved the Spice Boss, you know, and uh, that's where it was at, you know. Um, he's in the playground, he's talking about listening to music with kids and the kids in the play, talking about music in the playground and stuff. Yeah, so that's it. It would have been, it would have been a change. I don't know if the band would have survived anyway after a while. Probably, you know, probably, but. Um, it definitely wasn't, you know, who we were. It, I mean, it, it, it was because we did it, but it was contrived, you know. And uh, and Ian Hampton, the bass player, said to me years ago, a long time ago now, he said, you know, you'd be surprised, man. He said, uh, it's all, he says, one of the records you hear in the dance clubs all the time. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, yeah, they love it in the dance clubs, you know. So I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I like it, but I like, I like King Cap and Ooh Rudy and La La Girls. I like those songs a lot more than Bish Bash Bosh. But right. you did do a great job of writing that kind of song, and right. you know, trying to make it happen. And I definitely yeah. could could see where you were coming from at the time. Yeah. So how did? How did you end up having that record released on Bomp Records? Was did you have interaction with Greg Shaw, or how did that come about? They approached us about putting it out, and uh, you know we have um, all the demos uh, that you mentioned, everything. Uh, they're on Saw Song Music. I have that. We have that. You know, um, but uh, all the RCA uh, releases have to be uh, licensed. You know, and. Uh, they asked us if we were into it, and I said, sure. And in fact, while we're talking about it, um, Cherry Red Records have put out a, compil- a three-CD compilation. They've used Aggravation Place, and we said, sure. And uh, they just, I just got an email last week uh, from John Reed again asking if they can do this Bash in another compilation. And I said, I said to him, sure, but this one's an RCA, it's an RCA product. You know, because the uh, uh, aggravation place, I was able to give him permission, but, you know, he's, he has to license this Bash boss, you know. Right. So that's what's happened. Those companies, if, if, they, uh, if they, you know, want to use those 
records, they have to license them. When did different class come out? Like 2004? I guess they licensed everything because they've got yeah. everything on here. Yeah, and so this CD has songs like Different Class and Cooch on it. When were those songs recorded? Were those recorded like they at this? Recorded at uh, R. G. Jones. Uh, as over the over the maybe after. Yeah, they were just recorded in the two years. We'd go into R. G. Jo- R. G. Jones and just record new stuff. You know, uh, as we were in town or whatever. You know, set aside recording session time. You know. Yeah, you basically had a whole album if it had yeah, just oh, been yeah. put together. Yeah. Did you continue writing songs all this time? Do you still write? I, I, I know a few things with uh, my friend, John Holbrook. Uh, in fact, we recorded two tracks after the Hartford show that are really good. 
I mean, they're really good. They're the best, two of the best things we ever did. And I wrote, I co-wrote those with John Holbrook, who I'd produced Randy Van Warmer records with and other things. And uh, we got we got together. He lived up the road here in a piece. And uh, so we, we wrote and worked together a little bit. We wrote two, three songs. We wrote one for Brian Setzer. He was uh, engineering Brian Setzer. And Brian Setzer's second album after Vavoom wasn't happening. And... Uh, I mean, John said, there's not a single on the whole thing. And I, and I said, well, that's right, one. I said, I said to him, think of a good, you know, think of a think of a Brian Setzer, you know, vibe, rhythm and stuff. And they came up with this drum bass thing. And I said, that's good. And I said, so I wrote a song with him called Vavoom, you know, which was based on it. And sent it out to Brian Setzer. And he said, he said to John, he said, uh, you're a genius, man. He said, how, how, did, how did this happen? And John said, no. Oh, I just wanted to offer it because I think it needs a single, you know. And uh, so he took it to Geffen Records and they said, no, 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 no. We're like, we're up to 300,000 at the moment. We're way over budget. We're not going to do any more recording. Uh, we're not, we're, we don't any, want any more of your suggestions, Brian. They <laughs> said, here's two songs you think you should do. And, if, you know, that's it. We either do this or don't, and we'll put the album as is. So he went in and he did two, two songs that was recommended by the record company, and they were you know, the usual, you know, boring, you know. And so it never got released, you know, but it was really, again, uh, it was a dispatch boss, if I say myself, you know, but it never saw the light of day, you know. Wow. Do you, so do you still have that recording? Or do you have yeah. a digital? Uh, I have a yeah yeah sure sure. Would you want me I, to Would you want me to play that on the show, or yeah, even just a want... clip of it? Would that be all right? Absolutely, yeah.
life can be beautiful. For sure, for sure. That's what I like. Va va voom, baby. I think aggravation place stands out as there's really nothing glam rock about that. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even, that's not a glam rock song. That's just a, uh-huh. that's just a rock song. That's just a, it's kind of a timeless kind of song. I think it's my, I, I definitely think it's my best song. <laughs>
All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Ian Kimmett from the band Juke. Earlier in the episode, we heard an unreleased song called Vavoom that Ian co-wrote to potentially be included on a Brian Setzer album. Didn't end up being used, but it was great to get to hear it on the podcast. And now I'm going to leave you with another previously unreleased song that Ian sent me. He wrote that, We recorded these out of a desire to mark the 40th reunion concert, recorded here locally over the Hudson River in Paul Antonell's clubhouse studio in Rhinebeck. That's in New York. So this song we're going to hear play was co-written by Ian Kimmett and John Holbrook, who also produced the recordings. And I guess John Hewlett also contributed a basic idea, the basic idea for this song. And the song is performed by the three surviving members of Juke, Ian Kimmett, Ian Hampton, and Trevor White. So check it out. This is a previously unreleased reunion song from Juke called Play.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 